Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Washington fought the war, and Adams is, you know, he traveled the courts of Europe to secure support and money for the American Revolution. Uh, these two revolutionaries left their lives and their routines and their families and lost the most productive years of their lives to defend conceptions of liberty and order during an imperial crisis. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Sean David McGee discussing the first partisan application of the Electoral College. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Sean David McGee. And he'll be discussing the first time that the Electoral College was used with a partisan application. You know, I find that in my classes, amongst my friends and colleagues, people that are close to me, uh, one of the least understood but most important elements of our entire democratic system here in the United States is that of the Electoral College. It was created 250 years ago to solve a problem that no longer exists today. Um, A lot of people think the Electoral College gives partisan advantage in our modern political climate, Uh, and lately that has been the case. Uh, However, if you really study the Electoral College, understand the Electoral College, there isn't really much of an advantage to be had for either party. Depending on the year, it it could really help or hurt either party either way. It's one of the strangest parts of our system. In my opinion, it's a fundamentally undemocratic part of our system. It's not the first and it's not the only. And Sean David McGee gives us uh, an interesting history of how that, uh, maybe the inherent problems of the Electoral College were first applied as early as 1792, not even five years into the existence of our republic, uh, with a constitution that is. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Sean David McGee. Sean David McGee, thank you for joining us. Uh, Thank you, Brady, for inviting me onto the podcast. I've been looking forward to this conversation all week, and I'm really happy to join the community. Tell us about your background. Okay. Uh, Well, I just recently finished my PhD at Temple University. Um, my dissertation, Suffering in the Common Cause, investigates the point and process uh, by which American subjects transformed into Republican citizens. I was really interested in political identity formation and political community uh, in general during those, um, uh, how shall we say, the, the, the nebulous moments before the Revolutionary War. Uh, more specifically, I was curious to learn how a large portion of American Whigs were affected psychologically and emotionally once they took the leap and left the British monarchical system. Um, By trade, I'm a history teacher in Cinnamonson High School in Burlington County, New Jersey. I've been teaching honors and advanced placement U.S. history for about 15 years uh, in an outstanding school district. 
Um, I'm also fortunate to work with some really talented department members who patiently listen to my ideas and critique my work. Uh, in the evening, I'm an adjunct professor of history in the Philadelphia metropolitan area. I'm currently at a college in Philadelphia teaching interpreting history and modern American politics. And I've been a student of revolutionary America and the early national period for nearly 20 years, which, which really would have surprised my undergraduate self because I fully expected to study uh, the politics of the Cold War. Uh, but I fortuitously took a class, the age of the American Revolution, admittedly more for the credits uh, than the content. And it exposed me to a whole world of ideas that just drew me in like a tractor beam. Uh, and I've, I've been engaged with that world uh, ever since. What first drew your interest into this topic? Okay, so the research that we're discussing today is my exploration into the first time uh, political actors weaponized the Electoral College for partisan purposes. And this is not what my dissertation was about, but it's in the world that I study. And I, I think that I was not unlike plenty of other doctoral students. Uh, I, I, I don't remember when I was... I was flailing around looking for a dissertation topic. I knew the when I was going to study. I had just yet to find that elusive spark for what I would study. And I remember I had just read Leonard Richards' outstanding book, uh, Shays Rebellion, The American Revolution's Final Battle. And, and for a moment, at least, I considered trying to produce a similar sort of socio-political investigation, but this time focusing on Fry's Rebellion. And this naturally led me to the Adams Papers. Uh, and through some less than focused preliminary digging, I, I came across a series of letters between Adams and his wife, Abigail. And Adams was discussing the 1792 election with a sense of uncertainty, which struck me as odd. Uh, and he, you know, he refers to this sort of mysterious meeting of pro-Clinton forces that were meeting to unseat him. And it, it did not resonate with with my understanding of the 1792 election, which is usually just sort of sort of glossed over. And then in a response, of course, Abigail Adams is writing that she's paying close attention to Marcus and Lucius in the in the, in the national newspapers. Uh, two authors obviously masked behind classical pseudonyms, either attacking or defending Adams's candidacy. And I just, I chased those articles down, and I looked through more uh, of the publications that enjoyed the closest approximation to national distribution, uh, John Fenno's Gazette of the United States and Philip Fresno's National Gazette. And there were some really expressive and, and, and alarming concerns about the election results. Now, Again, I said a moment ago, this, this really struck me because the election of 1792, if it's even mentioned, it's sort of glossed over as a non-event or just really a rerun of 1788. And this is a really, a really Washington-centric understanding of that contest. And the story on the ground was, was much more dramatic. Uh, but in the end, I, I filed the research away for a while once I found the source material of what, what ultimately became my dissertation. And over the course of my doctoral studies, I compiled a folder of research ideas, none of which I had the time to address. But now that I'm done, I have you know, finally the time to address them all. So this was the first one that I was really excited to dig into. Talk about why the Electoral College was designed in its constitutional form. So, so this, is, this is a great question, Brady. This is a question that holds great 
historiographical significance. And to really appreciate its implications, I'd I'd like to step back a bit. Uh, The Electoral College is a key component to the federal architecture under the new constitution. And so to appreciate this, uh, we need to consider the nature of the federal constitution um, and what it is or, or, or what it was to the actors of the time, right? Is the constitution the, the crowning achievement of the American Revolution, uh, something that's you know carefully calibrated as a federal roof, if you will allow me to use John Murren's term? Uh, is it a counter-revolution, something designed to, by elites to restrain the dangerous spirit of democracy? Uh, Or is it something else entirely? Is it a document that reflects the hard lessons learned during the critical 1780s? I've always always taught my students to think about the Constitution as a sort of filter. Uh, And if you'll permit me a second to just consider the multitude of crises that faced the nation shortly before its implementation, I think this will make a bit more sense. you know, the, the, the nation's facing native unrest in the West. The Spanish have banned American commerce on the Mississippi River. There's a lingering British presence. Foreign ports were not as welcoming to American goods as Americans had, ho- had hoped. There's a war debt of something like 74 or, or, or something like that. So there's, there's millions and tens of millions of dollars that the nation has outstanding. And in addition to the, to the, to the debt crisis, there's a credit crisis, right? If you can't pay your debt, you can't, or, uh, you can't borrow additional money. There's a destroyed economy, you know, there's a range of issues that are going on at the state and the national level. And I think the one thing that they have in common is that they're all solvable problems if the quote unquote right sorts of people were given the authority to do so. So I think that we should see at least partly the federal architecture being designed to filter out unqualified men of a questionable pedigree. Uh, I think one example will suffice. If we look at the House of Representatives, the only true democratic element of the early national government, uh, we see even there the congressional districts were designed uh, around a minimum of 30,000 people. Now, to put that into perspective, Washington himself doesn't know 30,000 people, right? But but 30,000 people know of Washington. And I think this really reveals what the framers had in mind. They were trying to make certain that men of reputation and men of quality uh, were the only ones that were sitting and steering the federal ship of state. Uh, And they placed an additional filter in the federal constitution in the form of the electoral college. So we have the president and and the vice president, uh, these two magistrates that are not directly elected by the people. Uh, If you dig through the, uh, the journals, of the Constitutional Convention, you'll see that James Madison really wanted a democratic election of the president. But others who had less faith in the public at large, they saw an additional safeguard for these sensitive positions. And I I could be mistaken, if I remember correctly, it's James, Pennsylvania's James Wilson initially made the the suggestion for electors, um, officials that were not part of the government. And these other delegates came to agree, citing either you know protecting the presidency from cabals and conspiracies, or protecting it from popular politicking. Uh, electors, in theory, were expected to just select the most qualified men to the most sensitive positions in government. Uh, I mean, according to Hamilton in, 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 in Federalist 68, he says the process was designed to make it impossible for men of low intrigue and corrupt foreign courts to manipulate a presidential election. 
so I, I think that's that's the sort of that, that's at least part of the story and as to how we get an electoral college, the, the, the sensitive nature of the presidency and the fear of popular politicking and, and the, the corruptive influence of, of foreign courts. Who was in the electoral college? So this is a, a bit murkier. Um, the electoral college was supposed to be made up of disinterested gentlemen who would make the sacred decision of selecting the president and vice president. Um, they, you know, the, the, the constitution leaves it to the states to determine how these electors are chosen. Uh, and theory, of course, is not always uh, does not always work the way that it's expected to work in application. Uh, as early as 1788, for instance, Pennsylvania nearly deadlocked over how they were going to select their electors. Um, state representatives struggled over whether to determine their electors uh, by either the General Assembly, which would have helped anti-federalist forces, or a combination of the state Senate and the Assembly, which would have helped the federalist forces. Uh, in New York, well, well, that state couldn't even agree on time on how to select their electors, and they failed to cast votes in the 1788 presidential election. Uh, one revealing letter that I came across during the 1792 cycle was from an actual elector from Virginia, a gentleman named William Overton Callis. And he wrote a letter to James Madison uh, explaining his intention to vote for George Clinton over John Adams. And he, from reading the letter, he takes his responsibility quite seriously, but he also exposes his political motivation. So this idea of a sort of disinterested gentleman, you know, again, in theories, is not going to work on the ground in practice. I mean, uh, Callis explains that as an elector, it was his solemn responsibility to know the character and virtue of men standing for public office. and. You know, since every American and every European knew Washington's qualities and knew Washington's virtue and knew Washington's character, the president needed no further vetting. But this elector claimed, since Adams clearly hated the southern states, at least according to Callis, uh, he had to support Clinton's candidacy. So it seems clear that the original intent of the framers was to allow electors freedom of conscience to select the most capable and virtuous individuals without consideration of popularity. Uh, whether or not that came to fruition is obviously an open debate. Talk about the election of 1792. Why was it contentious? Sure. So I think that this election draws to the fore the conflicting legacies of the American Revolution, the ownership of its gains, and who rightfully deserved to be its true custodians. Uh, it's, impossible, it's impossible to appreciate why this overlooked contest was drenched in what I like to call the politics of apocalypticism. Uh, if you would just bear with me a moment to provide a thought experiment. Uh, I think uh, prior to the 2016 or 2020 elections, if we could go back in time and, and drag an actor from the 1790s into, say, the 1980s or the 1990s or the early 2000s and let them watch a modern election cycle unfold, uh, I think our visitor from the 1790s would say something like, wow, things have calmed down. This is really good. 
Uh, as Americans, we're conditioned to believe that every election is the most important election, but certainly some are more consequential than others in hindsight. We need to remember that in 1792, political actors didn't have the benefit of 200 years of stable American constitutional government behind them. They also didn't have any experience with the political parties in a modern sense. Uh, they certainly couldn't grasp the idea that there could be a party of loyal opposition. That is to say, a party that supported the fundamental law of the land, the federal constitution, but opposed the individuals pulling the reins of government. Let's, you know, just for a moment, survey their experience with parties leading up to 1792 or, or, or factions, really. During the revolution, there were two broad camps. I'm generalizing here, of course. There are two broad camps, Whigs supportive of defending American liberties and loyalists uncomfortable perhaps with parliament's taxation attempts, but far more uncomfortable with the frightening idea of, of a revolution. Yet after the Treaty of Paris, you could no longer be against the revolution. You could be upset about its results, but if your fundamental purpose for organizing as a group was to remain in the empire, well, that option is gone. Next, we have the debate over the Constitution. There were Federalists and Anti-Federalists, but once the Constitution was ratified, your principal motive for organizing could no longer be to prevent ratification. Uh, in the final analysis, by 1792, the common experience that these early Federalists and Republicans had with parties was simple yet horrifying. One would live, the other would die off. And there's also this element of perception as well. Uh, both sides believed the worst in their opponents. Republicans remained convinced that Federalists secretly plotted to subvert the Constitution and create an American monarchy on its ashes. And Federalists remained equally convinced that Republicans hoped to undo federal institutions and return the nation to something like the 1780s or worse. Uh, so and these fears, these fears are littered throughout the correspondence of these actors. There's actually there's actually a great article. Uh, it's an older article from the from the late 1950s uh, that may be outdated by by some scholar standards. But you know, there's an article by Marshall Smelzer called something like the Politics in the Age of Passion, or Passion the Politics of the 1790s. At any rate, he does an outstanding job framing this decade as an emotional moment in American history, where even the brightest minds felt more than they thought about electoral politics. Uh, and, and one last thing, just to put the contentious nature of this uh, of this con of this election in, in in context, Jefferson was convinced that the nation was going to split apart without Washington, going so far as to writing the president that the North and South would hang together only if they had Washington to hang on. Washington's Attorney General Edmund Randolph goes even further and offers an even gloomier assessment. Right? And he, he predicts that there was going to be a civil war if Washington did not run in 1792. Uh, Washington was the one man holding together, it seems, these deepening sectional factions, according to some observers at least. And some Republicans were even beginning to, su to suspect that Washington's own style of politics were beginning to reveal or expose a sort of monarchical uh, uh, influence, if you will. What exactly was the problem with John Adams in the minds of many of these electors? Okay, so by 1792... The first Washington administration had embraced a number of controversial initiatives that proved, if you will, its monarchical intentions to Republican observers. The funding and assumption plan, the excise of 1790, the Bank of the United States, 
Washington himself began to hold private meetings with citizens once or twice a week at the executive mansion where he stood at the front of the room like a statue, conveniently placing one hand in the pocket and holding a hat with the other. I mean, his body language was clear, right? He was not to be approached in any intimate fashion. John Fenno, a printer, had established a decidedly pro-administration newspaper, the Gazette of the United States. Washington's birthday was being celebrated as if he were a monarch. Uh, Some felt Washington himself was transforming into a king. And then there's John Adams. Uh, So the sitting vice president faithfully attends every session of the Senate. Uh, He casts a tie-breaking vote something like 29 times, usually in support of pro-executive or pro-administration legislation or, or, or just legislation that Adams himself is in favor of. And, and to the horror of some senators, he regularly lectured the Senate on policy and procedure. Uh, this so unnerved the Senate at large that at one point, uh, some of them uh, proposed crafting legislation that would have constitutionally silenced Adams while he presided over the Senate. And of course, few forgot the title controversy when Washington was being sworn in for the first time. Adams offered a range of these sort of, in hindsight, ridiculous and stiff and monarchical sounding titles for the president. I'll give you a a few examples here. His Highness, the President of the United States and the Protector of their Liberties, or His Elective Majesty, or who could forget uh, His Mightiness. Adams also had a particular view of the relationship between government and the people that had become decidedly unfashionable uh, by the 1790s. He held on to an ordered society that was sort of based on wealth. Now, to his credit, he openly feared oligarchy, and he was fearful that you know incredibly wealthy men with great influence over the government would wield that influence in a way that would only empower and enrich them further. Uh, he was equally concerned about the dangers of an unregulated and uncontrolled democratic element that would lead to anarchy. And so he imagined that you know, any government, any form of Republican government would have to be very carefully calibrated to have separation of powers and checks and balances. But he based this on this sort of ordered understanding of, of, the, of the American society. And of course, by the 1790s, most American theorists are, are, are looking more at the sovereignty of the people uh, overall rather than the sovereignty of or, or rather like split sovereignty uh, between orders. Uh, Adams also writes the discourses on Davila uh, published in Fenno's paper in 1790, where he again expresses fear of democracy. Uh, I think taken together, Adams appeared to Republicans who were already predisposed to think the worst of him as a corruptive influence on Washington, as a legislative threat in the Senate, and as an enemy to the gains of the American Revolution. And also, let's not forget, he was an elected officer, so he was not only vulnerable to these attacks, but he was vulnerable to removal. Uh, I mean, we can only imagine how much more intense this election would have been if, if Hamilton was a vice president sitting for re-election. What did the plans to unseat him look like? Okay, so some of this is still it's still murky, but this is this is the, the general picture. It looks like this plan to remove Adams hatched in New York at a dinner in New York in sometime in June 1792. Some Jay supporters, John Jay supporters, were were talking about the possibility of Governor George Clinton from New York running 
running for the vice presidency. Now, just a little little background there. John Jay had been defeated that April of 1792 by George Clinton in a deeply controversial election, an election that so controversial that that Thomas Jefferson could not support George Clinton because of the way that he won. At any rate, these Jay supporters are at a dinner. They're still stinging from this loss. And they begin to hear these rumors that the what they call the anti-federalist element were lining up to support George Clinton for vice president. Later that summer, these two New York assemblymen, Melanchthon Smith and Marinus Willett, write a letter. They wrote a letter to James Monroe uh, of their plan to unseat Adams by rallying Republicans to unite in an effort to remove Adams and monarchy from government. They proposed Aaron Burr. And the reason why they proposed Aaron Burr is because they had just narrowly reelected George Clinton, and they felt that Clinton's influence as chief executive in New York was more valuable in that state than it would be to the anti-federalist cause at the national level. So again, they want to promote Aaron Burr. Hamilton, a New Yorker, finds out about this plan, and he begins a serious letter campaign, uh, and he writes to um, John Adams that Clinton is going to be your opponent in 1792, and a plot to subvert the government is presently unfolding. The impa- this paranoid environment is so intense that Hamilton, uh, in, in, a, in a separate letter, actually designs a cipher that designates classical pseudonyms for all the major national players. So in future correspondence, for instance, when Hamilton writes Tarkin, he, he actually means James Monroe. And speaking, I'm sorry, James Madison. Uh, now, getting back to the plot, uh, James Monroe plas- passes this plan to unite behind Burr onto Madison, who's sort of like a like a field general, if you will, for Virginia Republicans. And as I mentioned before, Jefferson can't he can't bring himself to support Clinton, uh, since he believed that the Clintonites stole the election. But Madison, in a rare break from Jefferson, responds to the New York ball that Burr was not the best idea due to his relative anonymity and inexperience. And in a carefully worded letter, it reads as if Madison is trying his best not to offend anyone uh, for, for you know potential future political gains. Uh, in a carefully worded letter, he revealed that Republicans would be better off uniting behind a more experienced man. He doesn't say his name, but he's referring to Clinton over a less experienced man. He doesn't say his name, but he's referring to Burr. Virginia, in short, uh, would support Clinton and save the republic from the corruptive influence of Adams. Now, there's one additional element that's worth fleshing out here. Hamilton, in typical fashion, begins to strategize like a Republican and imagine a worst-case scenario. And he dreams up this electoral uh, plan that his opponents actually were not plotting. But I think it is a testament to just how sophisticated some national actors were in their thinking about the institutional manipulation of the Electoral College for partisan gain. Uh, Hamilton convinced himself that Southerners were actually manipulating even Northern Republicans by feigning support for Clinton. But their true goal, he believed, was to trick Northern Republicans into fracturing the North between Adams, Clinton, and Burr, while a solid South united behind Jefferson to elevate him to the vice presidency. Again, a worst-case scenario uh, for Alexander Hamilton. What ultimately happens? How does it play out? So I don't think that the conspiracy falls apart. I think it, it goes a long way. So, so let's, let's just compare 1788 and 1792. 
briefly. In 1788, John Adams received 34 electoral votes out of 69. That's one short of a majority at 49%. In 1792, he received 77 out of 132 votes cast, or 58%, and a clear majority. Adams actually gained support you know, between those election cycles. But in 1788, no other candidate received anywhere near the support Adams did. And if Adams did better in 1792, well, so did Clinton. Clinton received three electoral votes in 1788 and 50 in 1792. Uh, Jefferson received Kentucky's uh, uh, electoral votes uh, since that state was effectively peeled off from Virginia. And Aaron Burr received one lone vote from South Carolina. Now, in true John Adams fashion, he was miserable over the results. He was offended that any Americans would value Clinton's contributions to the nation's founding as much as his own efforts on behalf of the republic. And he writes to his wife that if this was his reward for all of his efforts, it may be time to quit public service altogether. The outcome also stung Republicans, though. Jefferson, before the election, described that contest as a referendum on what he called the doctrines of the monocrats. Um, and after uh, Adams retains office, looking for a silver lining, Jefferson could only claim that since the election was so close, American monarchists would never again attempt to be so bold in their nefarious designs. Uh, this election, of course, was, was a preview of the 1796 contest in many ways. How does this article help us understand the Revolutionary Era better? That's a, a really good question, Brady. Uh, and the, the best response that I could give to that uh, is I think that it reveals that there were American revolutions. Uh, the purpose, gains, and losses of that process really depend on perspective. It also exposes how rapidly the politics of the revolutionary period accelerated radicalism in America. I mean, consider for a second that Adams and Washington were the face of American dissent. They embodied the martial, the diplomatic, and the ideological spirit of resistance to what they considered British oppression. Washington fought the war, and Adams is you – know, he traveled the courts of Europe to secure support and money for the American Revolution. Uh, these two revolutionaries left their lives and their routines and their families and lost the most productive years of their lives to defend conceptions of liberty and order during an imperial crisis. And after the war, they're, they're called to lead the new republic. And suddenly the ground drops from beneath their feet. Suddenly they became the oppressors of sorts. Uh, suddenly the Washington administration is the British court, and a new group of radicals uh, represents American dissent and, and is claiming ownership of, of the principles of the American Revolution. How incredible that that must have been. In four short years, Adams is no longer con considered the face of American resistance. Uh, to sort of refashion Carl Becker's dual thesis, Americans decided who would rule. Uh, it would be Americans rather than the British Parliament. But they would continue to fight over who would rule at home. Uh, I would argue that the spirit of the American Revolution, channeled through established constitutional institutions, has continued during every election season since that contested moment in 1792. Sean David McGee, thanks again. Thank you so much, Brady. It's a great conversation. 
The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. <laughs>